Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cami. In each episode, we'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I've been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and other subconscious roadblocks and no idea how to get past them. I've been through this process myself. I want to help you become your best you. You deserve it. In this episode, my guest, award-winning writer and speaker Terry Trespicio and I chat about the creative process and how we somehow always manage to beat ourselves up while we're inside it. We talk about ways to tame that nagging inner critic, what it means to become a sovereign person, and what it means to own all your choices, among other things. An expert on not following your passion Terry's TEDx talk has recently surpassed 7 million views, and her upcoming book, Unfollow Your Passion, gives countless examples of why following your passion is just plain bad advice. Are you ready to dive deep? You know, we met the night before your... I gave a TED talk. TED talk. No, but I had met you before at How, I thought. We, we were at How, but we did not meet at How. We were both speakers at we were How. We were both at How Design Live. We were both speaking there. We didn't really meet. We didn't meet, but we did. Then you were at the TED event and it was like, how are we going to the same events? Like that was crazy. Right. I remember meeting you on the roof. It was like a rooftop party. Yeah. It was uh, one of the upper balconies at the Kaufman Center. That was 2015. And that was the eve of an event that was really fantastic and and really fun. But also that day changed my life. Oh my gosh. Yes. You're, you're over 7 million views now, right? Yeah. When I left that, that, beautiful theater in Kansas city. I was like, wow, 3000 people saw that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, it kind of took on a life of its own. So yeah, this past summer, it just surpassed 7 million views. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'd still have a book coming out if it weren't for that TED talk, but it wouldn't be this book, (laughs) a different book. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for, um, for talking with me today. Oh my God. I'm so excited. I have been cheering you on this whole process. Um, well, congrats, thank you. Congrats on the new book coming out. Holy crap. You've got to be so excited. I can't believe it's happening. Like I, I don't, I almost can't believe it's real just because it was so long that you kind of work on it and you're like, man, this will never get done. You know what I mean? And then it has to get done. So it gets done. And look at that behind you. I can see some. <laughs> yeah. Those are just the advanced galleys, but that is the cover. It's just that they're, they're, they're just, they have errors. They're, they're not copy edited. We're still copy editing, but um, but since I have the cover, I was like, I should have it up and in the frame at all times. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much for sending me the the sneak peek. Oh my God. I read, I think I'm up to a hundred page 130. Um, oh my God. Look at you reading it. Oh yeah. I eat books. I, I read, <laughs> I read for probably an hour a day, every day. And so you probably did come across some of those errors, but rest assured, we caught them. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't reading. I, I'm not a great proofreader, but I, I wasn't reading for that. I was I was so ensconced hearing your voice as if you were reading the book to me. The book is written so, so deeply in your voice that it's yes. wonderful to read. Yep. But it felt it felt right. I mean. I did, I did write it on my own and then I am, I just got the approval to do the audiobook. So then I really will be reading it. <laughs> we'll be reading it to people, my voice. That is so exciting. Oh my God. I know. Very fun. Cause I was going to be like, I'm going to be really annoyed if they have someone else read it. It's not me. That's weird. <laughs> 
I took June and July off of doing my volunteer mentoring and from networking uh, with the intention of writing my latest book. And I did it in two months. You did it. I did it. It happens when you give yourself that deadline. It worked for you. Yes. What's the new one? The new one, you know, there's a story behind it. All right. So what I want to talk to you about today, which I'd love to pick your brain about is um, while we are inside the creative process, whether that's designing, whether that's writing, whether that's, you know, anything that we think of as the creative process, how do you personally get past beating yourself up in the middle of the creative process? And, and, and how do we as a group get past that? Like, I know you have coached other people to get out of that habit. What do you do? Uh, that's an interesting question because I don't know if I would even lay claim to the fact that I've gotten people out of it forever. Uh, I don't know that I'm past it. It's kind of like saying I ate so I won't ever be hungry again. I mean, the creative process is always going to draw up feelings and appetites and fears and all those things. And this idea, I want to even question the idea. I want to, I want to challenge the premise of the question, which is what everyone tells me to do. Like, how do I get past critics so I can do this work? Well, you can't fire them. You can't divorce them and you can't move out. They are part of, well, it's part of the very complex, you know, intricacies of the mind and how it's encultured and trained, you know, where we grew up, how we've internalized external criticism from others, what we were taught about wanting to please and be liked and approved of and recognized. I mean, there's so many things at play that the critic is actually fairly um, complex, too. And so I do have a way of dealing with and I will talk about that. But I think it's worth us just realizing that that knee-jerk reaction, that squeeze, that contraction that hits us all as humans in the creative process, in the process of work, in the process of relationships, any process, we're always kind of going from contraction to expansion and back again. So there are moments when you feel really confident and great and other moments when you're not. Again, doesn't matter how much you eat today, you're going to be home tomorrow. Those things are going to come up again and again. I have, like many people, been spent my, especially my young life, incredibly, uh, <laughs> I was raised Catholic, so we are trained. It is a discipline and an art to beat yourself up and to assume you're a sinful, horrible thing and that, you know, good luck to you. Uh, may, may God uh, forgive you for everything you haven't done yet. But I, as an anxious kid, was always you know, in my own way and blocked and stressed out. I am less stressed now. And that, that was a process too. I am not, my inner critic is not gone. But the difference is that I decide where I'm putting my attention. That ongoing nattering that we feel that like, oh, you're never going to, people are going to think this and da, 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 da. Okay, I hear you, but you'd sort of, you learn to tune it out like something you, you just don't want to hear anymore. And sometimes I believe the critic can serve only because it thinks it's helping anyway. And so if there's a kind of fear, it's like, okay, well, you know, you turn to you go, okay, well, what is, what is behind that nattering you're saying? Like, what is the real concern? Cause it's a the concern. Uh, but I am not like, like people say this to me all the time too. Cause you hear me for a few minutes on a podcast or on stage, be like, Oh, she's so confident. She clearly isn't plagued by any internal critic. That's not true at all. 
And having just written a book, that's a long process. It's a long protracted process during which there are many periods of time and moments where you'll feel amazing and elated. And then also really down on yourself. And I went up and down. And when I hit those down periods where I was like, this is going to be stupid. Everyone's going to think it's dumb. And I heard that in my mind. I go, oh my God, this is going to be, this is going to be bad. I'm going to be made fun of it. And I was like, oh, I know this song. I, I, I know this song and I don't like it. So I'm reminding that it's like, oh, that song came on again. Meh. What I remind myself, and Cammy, this has really been helpful to me, is uh, what Elizabeth Gilbert in, in Big Magic said, the part that, I don't, I'm not a direct quote, but the part that doubts or fears, your fears, she said, your fears are the least interesting thing about you. Mm-hmm. I apply that to the critic. The critic is cliche. The critic says the same things over and over for decades. So it's not coming to me with fresh ideas and new things. It's the same old thing. Mm-hmm. Very definitely. I like to think of our inner critic as an overprotective best friend who says, no, no, no. Honey, That's an interesting character. That. Yes. You can't do that. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be dangerous. And if you ignore her or in my case, him, my, my inner critic's male, go figure. If you ignore him or her, um, she gets louder or he gets more screechy. And more insistent until you acknowledge, yeah, 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 I heard you. Right, right. It's like another person. <laughs> yeah. They need to be acknowledged like any person wants to be acknowledged. Yeah. And, and but to, that's really sweet, though, that you think of your critic as, as this kind, overbearing, sort of, you know, patriarchal figure. Yeah. Well, and he told- You must have been raised Catholic, too. <laughs> <laughs> it, my inner critic now is... Um, he's my co-pilot. He's my advisor. He's got like, I imagine this is the bus I'm driving and my, my inner critic is no longer allowed to touch the steering wheel. That's right. But he's over here and he's got, I like, I imagined a, a little sheepskin seat cover for him and he's got a shiny gold name tag that says advisor. And he's on a hair trigger. The littlest thing yes. scares him. And that's where you know where the outer boundary is. <laughs> yes. Yes. So and like when I was writing my book, you know, I'd sit down to write and he'd go, but you don't know what you're talking about. People are going to know you're just winging it. You're going to figure they're going to you're a fraud. And I and, and as I'm typing things, don't word it that way. Don't do it this way. All these ridiculous, like you said, cliched things. And I finally said, don't. Don't look at this. This is a first draft. That's right. I need you to look at this when I'm finished because I need that critical eye. And I can almost feel him going, well, I am important. And, you know, puffing himself up. And I thought, oh, my God, how 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 much more of this personification game can I can I do that helps? My gosh, it's so helpful. Well, it's good to see because it's a separate from you. Uh, the critic is sort of the party pooper, right? Like trying to straighten up and clean up in the middle of the party and won't actually enjoy the party. And you're trying to really be there. So the critic is keeping you from being fully present. But it sounds like you gave your critic a job to do. And I think that's that's important. When I was writing the book, when I was drafting it, I don't have room for the critic because then I can't access the part that needs to be creative. But now that we're in final pass and you're like, read through, are you sure? Is this all right? Then the critic has a job. But let's distinguish between the editor and the critic. In my mind, the editor, I always had editors I looked up to and who guided the work. Critic is sort of not always the most skilled and the critic has the same it's it's a nag right it's kind of like ah there's nothing new 
So it can't teach you anything new. It can only hold back from the things it's afraid of. So I don't look Mm -hmm. to the critic for new, fresh insights. I say, no, no, no. If I'm going to trust myself, right, I need to trust myself too. And that comes into that whole thing about, and you just said it, like when you feel it in your body, is it intuition? Is it intuitive hits that you trust? Or is it just the old critic knee jerk? And so I usually try to question around it. Like, well, what's at the root of it? What are you really afraid of? You know, are you afraid of looking bad or are you afraid you'll get hurt, physically hurt? You know, what are the real limits of that? But there is an exercise I was taught and I've used it. And I used it most recently when I stood to have that fear in, because to be honest, uh, this book, which is, it's called Unfollow Your Passion. It's a, it's a, it'll be on the shelf with the self-help book. I mean, like, but that's not what I set out to write. I wrote something else and the editor slash publisher said, no, 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 no. We're going to do this because we could actually sit this. And so we need you to. So I had to create something that I didn't set out to create. And then the critic was wild. Like, you didn't even want to do this. You should just leave. You shouldn't even do. And I was having all this kind of identity and ego and all this stuff. So I, I, one of my mentors uh, said, you know, you're going to have to do the critic exercise. I was like, I know I should do it. So here's what the critic exercise is. It's, it's, I'm sure you've heard of it uh, before, but this one exercise, we, I tell people to write at the top of the page. What is it now? What, what is it now? What do you need right now? And you give all of your attention to that critic and you say, go ahead, just have it out. And you write everything down. You're going to be this and da, da, da. write it out. Don't filter. Just write down what you hear. You know, you hear that it's dictation, write it down. And you think, well, if I write down, it'll be true. No, you just let it go for a few minutes. If you can handle it five minutes or something, let it, let it say the worst things, whether it's first person, or second person, however you hear it. Okay. Wait till it runs out of breath. Okay, great. You've had your say. I heard you. I wrote it down. Then we go back, and I usually do this in like a workshop setting, say, okay, now we're going to look at the critic's work. The critic just takes apart your work. Now we've had a chance to let the critic get on that page. Let's take a look. So I say, okay, when you set, like notice, when you see that the critic keeps repeating itself or looping back on the same things, notice that. Where is the critic flat out contradicting itself? You'll never get a book published. And when you do, everyone's going to hate it. Okay, well, which is it? Because it can't be both. So I see you're contradicting yourself and you're not really making the critic does not. It's not a great arguer. So where is it repeating? Where is it looping back? Where is it saying things that aren't true or aren't always true? One more that time you got heckled. Okay, yeah, I did. Are we saying that's always going to happen? Do you have proof that that will always happen? No. And so you see. And so then I bring in the resource or editor or guide or whoever and say, okay, let's look at what the critic is saying. What action can we take? We strip away all the negative. You're an idiot. You're a dummy. And everyone's going to laugh at you. And I go, well, what you're saying is I don't have enough information about X. So one of the things I can do is I will find more information about that. Uh, You're saying I don't have enough of this. need that so that you are responding to the issues that are being brought up underneath without reacting to the emotional thing. I did this when I started doubt when I was knee deep in the book. And I was like, I don't even know if I like this book, but this is not the thing I set out. I didn't sign up for this. I did sign up for this, but I was a little worried. And my mentor said, do the critic exercise, just do it. And I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to even face it that much. Okay, fine. So I did it. And after a few minutes, I was writing the same thing over and over again. I was like, she said, how'd it go? And I said, I got bored in the middle and I quit. 
is that bad? And she was like, that's great. You got bored by it. And then you could be like, okay, moving on. Right. So that you can just listen to it. You let the air out of it and then you move on You say, okay, that's what I thought. Now sit down, go take a nap. Let me get back to work. Wonderful. Wonderful. And what's happening at a, I'm a big science nerd. What's happening in our bodies at that time when our inner critic is engaged, it's the back part of our brain. It's our lizard brain, brain stem, limbic brain, all this stuff back here that our body starts to respond to before the idea and can get to the front part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, the smart part. And if we react as if everything our inner critic says is true, then that part of our brain, we don't even have access to it. It's completely, it's completely unavailable. Reptilian or whatever, right? Yeah. It's, and it's this part of our, the front part of our, our smart brain is off limits to us until we can calm that down. And that exercise, I love that because it gives all that a chance to, you know, get out and, and your, your actual, you know, your, your entire system gets to calm down a little bit yes. so that the, your best part of your brain can get back online and you can have That's access right. to your logic and your smart I, I self. I love that. I love that explanation. And it is sort of a, well, it is really a physical act because like you say, you're getting it out of your body. It can fester in there. And then you start to believe it because everywhere you turn in your head, there it is. Once it's out, you can actually see it. You do have to get past it at least almost like it's static. It's almost like you're turning the dial on a radio and it's like, I can't hear the music because there's all the static. I guess I'm just going to listen to static. Well, you know, you're not. You tune and tune. And when you get that clear signal, that's the part that feels like relief, that feels like music that's clarity right it makes sense it's cohesive it has a rhythm to it whereas critic is just sound 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 you know and it just isn't you know it'll always be there i just say oh i have that feeling and that fear the most unoriginal thing i could fear Uh so it's not original i don't want to have anything to do with especially as creatives we pride ourselves on, on thinking originally and having ideas and so when you get caught up in the same thing be like oh yeah i know this song i'm not listening to it anymore that's wonderful I love it. I love it. So do you have any other tips and tricks for getting out of the slump or getting out of the, the, the phase of us beating ourselves up in that? Um, I know, I mean, I know I do, but I'm, I want to pick your brain. A few other things that I'll do when I feel the squeeze coming on. So one of the things I tell people to do that I do is when I'm feeling the squeeze of not enoughness of there's not enough of panic if a bunch of things canceled, which did just happen to me. Like I thought we were back and all of a sudden all these events just canceled and I was kind of heartbroken about it. And then I say, well, I don't want to sit and stew. It makes me feel worse. And so I'm like, let's do something. Let's make something. Let's do something. When people say they feel stuck and part of that feels, uh, you know, paralysis by critic. They just feel stuck. That immovable feeling, I hate it. So I would rather move than not. And when I say move, I mean, move how? Literally, physically. Like after I found out my event canceled yesterday, I was like, all right, we're going to do something. We're going to get up. We're going to go do something. Can't sit here and worry and let this wave before we take over. So physical movement to get back into the body, to get out of this worry corner, you're backed into the, like the, literally the critic's corner of your brain. So I will do something physical, uh, go for a walk, do a physical task, something like that. Um, I will call someone or do I, I'm on a million different apps, how I, you know, 
different apps that I use to communicate with my friends. Uh, and I'll do that. I'll reach out as soon as I feel walls closing in or I will make something. So make something, move, connect with someone else. Don't sit and stew because stuck begets stuck, just like movement begets movement. You want that kind of momentum. The other thing is when I feel the not enoughness, like I feel either bad about myself or something or my prospects or whatever, I will do something that says, if I believed that I wouldn't do this, I proved the feeling wrong by trying something else. So I feel like well, there's not enough for me. That kind of uh, primal feeling is not enough. And I'm not going to be able to do this or that. I say, I'm going to give someone else an opportunity. How can I support someone else? Not because, oh, I'm so nice because I'm just such a big sweetheart. No, because it's actually, it's helpful to someone else. And it is self-serving. It makes me realize I don't have to be victim to the feeling of not enough. I can give and give as if I have plenty. And that is an action that proves the thinking wrong. So I'm not stuck if I'm physically moving. I'm not the victim of not enoughness if I have everything to give. And if I feel stuck in my work, I write. I have some, if I have something due and I have to write a thing, I have to write this piece and, and these people want it. And here's what it's supposed to be. I say, no, I don't, I don't put any of the rules around that. I just go, what do you really want to say in this thing? Cause writing is my medium. I'll say, okay, uh, well, I don't know, write for the article, forget the article. I just write, or I'll say, here's what I think I want to do. I do have a, a talk to plan that isn't planned yet. So I want to say, Rather than get in there and try to do slides and stuff, I'm just going to write. Here's what I want to say to you. Blah, 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 blah. I just blah, blah really fast. I don't think. I just write often right before bed when I'm tired because then the critic's sleepy too. So it was a tip given to me by my mentor, Suzanne Kingsbury, who said, write when you're tired because when you're tired, your critic is also sleepy and kind of is a little bit loose about what it lets in and lets out. So that's take advantage of it. And you tap a little bit of your, your me state. So, well, I think I want to do this. And I just type out a bunch of stuff. And then I go to bed. I wake up in the morning. I go, thank you very much, night fairy, for leaving me a path. And now that I'm crisp and alert, I can use this. Oh, looks like there's a lot of stuff here. You know, so I'll even say, well, what I want to say is this. What I would think I want to do is this so that I'm actually using the page to get through the thinking, using writing as a tool for thinking. And then when I come back, it's not a blank page anymore. So I'm not starting yeah, from, the, from scratch. The tyranny, know? the blank page can be so overwhelming, but I love it that. It's filled with expectations. Yeah. It's filled with other people's expectations. So I go, forget it. I'm just going to do a rough, dirty, rough draft. And that helps. So those are the things that really help me. And I also tell myself, I just really don't have time to entertain the critic. It's a big time suck. And I know that I say, I don't have time for this. I have so much I want to do in the few hours of the day where I feel alert and sharp. And I'm not alert and sharp all day at all points of the day. There's points of day when I'm kind of sleepy and I can't pay attention. And other times when I perk up, when I'm sharp and alert, those moments are so precious that I do not have time for BS from the critics. So I just go, okay, later, later, we'll talk later. Yep. Yep. And I then I just do the work I need to. Wonderful that you've taken advantage of the, your natural circadian rhythm. Um, Daniel Pink's book, when he talks about the peak, the trough and the recovery, the recovery mm -hmm. is for unstructured creative time. So it totally makes sense that you're tapping into that when your inner critic is sleepy to to start like anything's possible and you're asking what if and and anything can go on the page and then in the morning is the best time for structured creativity and you already mm -hmm. have your path of breadcrumbs to follow that's brilliant 
give you help yourself out. Think of it as like um, a baton, like a relay race where you hand the baton to the next person. I try to think of myself as handing myself the baton to the sharpest version of myself later to say, here, take this later. We can't do it all today. Don't overestimate what you can get done in a day. But if I can move it along to here, can you, can you pick this up tomorrow? Yes, I got you. I will go to bed so that you can do your job tomorrow. And then tomorrow me gets up and keeps going. Um, I find, and I, I have heard Daniel Pink speak and I love that. And it made me feel better, by the way, about taking advantage when I'm at my best. Because for years, having been in the magazine business, always like, how do you bust the three o'clock slump? How can I stop being so tired at three o'clock? Guess what? That's when you're slumpy. Like, so what? I don't want to power through. I don't want to push through. Nothing ever came of pushing through for me like that. So when I'm sleepy, I have the great privilege and luxury of being able to work from home. And so if I need to lay around and like sleep or space out, I am up then an hour later and I'm sharp as a tack. And I'm like, okay, now let's work. And so I work on and off all day through the evening, but I do it at my best. And you know, normal society is not structured around our individual circadian rhythms. My hope is now that we're in this hybrid life, people will do that because yes. the idea they're supposed to be on from nine to five is crazy. I used to sneak away. It's when cruel. I the steward. I used to sneak away to the lactation room that, and I was not a monster. I made sure that no one was signed up to use at that time, but it was the only room without windows and that had a lock on the door. And there'd be a point I couldn't keep my eyes open. Like who knows what was going on with me, but I would go in t- literally 20 minutes with my eyes shut and then I would get up and come out and it was like a new day. Yep. That was my dirty secret at work. <laughs> oh, but to, to me, that's a beautiful secret because that's you saying, hang on, I need this time for me to function, to function well. It's putting you at the center of self-care so that the every circle out past that from your loved ones to your paying work to your community all Take advantage of you do, taking care of yourself first. I, I just pretended I was in another meeting. No one ever even batted an eye. And it's like, you do need to take care of yourself first because people want the best out of you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And no one's going to no one's going to insist that you go take care of yourself. No one's going to do that work for you. No one cares. Yeah. No one cares. You have to advocate for that. It's also no one's business. Like if I'm like, oh, God, I'm taking a nap at three o'clock on a Tuesday, like who cares? I was also working at seven and I'll be working at nine o'clock tonight. Like, I don't know. I think especially for creatives that you have to listen to where, where are you at your best when, if in the middle of a, what do you call that? The valley, the trough, if you struggle then, and you're like really trying to do something in that period, and then you judge yourself by the effort at that low point, now you feel worse for later. But if you go, yeah, I just feel bad. I'll feel fine later. I'll be fine. I can do this. That right now is not when I'm best doing it. But you can imagine, oh, this hard. Why is everything hard? Maybe I'm bad at it. It just snowballs. So I don't judge anything when I'm tired. I just say, I'm tired. I'm cranky. And now is not the time to judge. Now is the time to enjoy some red wine and relax. And that's it. <laughs> Amen. I will happily join you with that. <laughs> So I wanted to, uh, I, I absolutely love your entire chapter on traveling and how much it changed your life. Um, and there's some, and there's some quotes from there. I just wanted to ask you about if you wanted to expand on Sure. a holy place follows a holy place. 
In other words, it wasn't just about what happened once, but what kept happening. History was the record. Practice made it holy. And the practice of people coming to worship in a place because they believed it was holy made it that way. So then further on, regardless of our particular faith, tradition, or practice, we're all looking for meaning. We all want to touch something that matters, if not created ourselves. And we also want to know that what we've been through matters too, which is why we might find ourselves clinging to things we've lost out of a need to find meaning in them. But we don't have to drag our lives and losses along with us to make them meaningful, and there's nothing you can pack to fully prepare yourself for what's next. If a holy place follows a holy place, then in meaningful moments and skills and lessons follow too. You can't forget to pack it, and you can't, and it can't get lost. I just love that so much. Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful idea that the things that are holy, first of all, are holy because we believe them to be. That's that, right. That puts us firmly as humans in the creator seat. That if we think it's meaningful, it's meaningful. If we think it's holy, it's holy. If we think it's worthless, it's worthless. And That's it, the truth. It's all what we think. Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it varies from person to person. No, no individual has the same exact set of beliefs about anything. Right. Um, but the, the, the meaningful moments and skills and lessons follow meaningful moments and skills and lessons and they come along with you. And I want you to talk a little bit about like that, the difference between like luggage and baggage and what you can't forget oh, to boy. pack. I love That's that. The, oh God. That is like, I didn't know quite, I knew I wanted to write about baggage because I knew the word bothered me. I started there and I've been writing, I mean, I've been writing pieces of this book for years and years, not sure, not sure where they were going, but I realized, what do I hate about the word baggage? People go, ah, she's got too much baggage. She's got too much baggage. I was like, first of all, what do you have? Nothing that you brought nothing with you from anywhere you've gone. You didn't bring, you didn't pack any little lessons, any, anything. Like, I don't trust people that walk in kind of sw arms swinging with nothing. And so I said, ah, I think the problem with baggage is that when we talk about it, it's usually about what someone else has, what we think they have. And it just never strikes me as fair to say, you know, if you say, I can't date that guy because he's been divorced through his baggage. Uh, there's plenty of people who are not divorced with baggage if that's what you're talking about. And it seemed like a, uh, a not nice way, a not kind way to count someone out. And yet I thought about my own relationship to packing, which is fraught because I am a nervous packer. I, I can't have anyone in my room or my apartment when I'm packing. I need to think really clearly. I could, because the idea of forgetting something, oh my God, what if I forget it? it I have a tremendous anxiety as I'm sure a lot of people do. Other people don't. They pack a bag right before they walk out the door. I can't. I need several days to think this through. And so I thought, what's, what is the relationship there? Now, of course, this is in the context of that chapter in which I write about my uncle to whom I dedicated the book. He's gone now, but he is the one who introduced me to the world in a lot of ways. He was a priest and a scholar professor at the University of Scranton, uh, Robert Barone, and he took me to see the great works of art, to go see the Holy Land. And I was on a study tour with him for several summers, like several summers in a row I went and learned and listened to him. And he said, a holy place follows a holy place. He kept saying it. And I and I, I mean, this was like 30 years ago. Almost. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He said, it's not that something's automatically holy, like it might be radioactive, 
Like if something's radioactive, ooh, there's something scary magic about it that's dangerous. But holy is what we say it is, which is why there are so many wars, holy wars, wars around religion, because what we believe is holy. You better believe it's holy, too. And if you don't, then you don't believe what I believe. And obviously it's fraught, too. But the feeling and the, the truth of it is, and you already nailed it, is that we decide, but not one committee decides. So the key, when we look to, and look, a lot of people find incredible meaning, value, and connection from their affiliation with religious institutions and groups, all kinds. Some we'd agree with, some we wouldn't, doesn't matter, it's up to them. I mean, if you look at the extreme cults, uh, why do they do it? Because they want to be in a cult? No. Because they feel connected, they feel seen there. But this is the same need that it serves all humans, right? They just do it in different ways. So when we we crave that and we want that, but then you realize, are we responsible? Aren't we responsible then for creating that meaning? Because you might be Catholic or Muslim or whatever, any other religion, and you have a shared set of beliefs, But what, say, uh, a precious object means to you, it doesn't mean that way to all other people. It's to you. It's what makes your life matter is the feelings and memories you associate with a thing, a time, a place. And so that's where the meaning is. But if we think, well, I'm defined by what happened before me, and you cling to those things that happened that were hurtful, a lot of people do cling to it like an anchor. They cling to it because it's steady and it's who they are. But if you hang on to an anchor, guess where you are, right? You're down, you're, you're weighed down, but, but that's who I am. If I let go of it, I don't know who I am. There's a whole, as you know, as someone who studies psychology, a whole set of identities wrapped up in that. So it's, it, there isn't one answer. It's, it's this bouncing back and forth, this dancing that line between, am I free? Am I defined by what happened? Am I free to be what I want? Do I get to declare it as I want? And I, I mean, I think so. Yes. I declare my life as I want. Absolutely. I, I am firmly on the on the side of you. You declare by your actions, by your thoughts, who you have committed to becoming by who you are right now. And who you are right now is what you've committed to in the past to becoming. And who you you don't get to hit me because someone hit you. Yeah. Right. Like you don't get to do that, even though you don't do payback that way. Yeah. I know that that's why that happens. Yeah. But when we look at it, we're right. We have to judge and decide based on how we're acting now, because if you blame an excuse, you could maybe get away with it. Be like, it's not my fault. This is my fault. Well, fine. A lot of things were not our fault. We're not in control of everything. But are you going to take ownership of it? Because if you rely on the blaming, Guess who owns your life? Not you. Yeah. Somebody in your past who's who's still connected to that to that baggage that you're carrying. I'm not interested in having anyone else own it. Yeah. Right. Are you? I mean, who is? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that. All right. Um, Another quote that I love from your book, it's from uh, more in the beginning. About people not worrying about the right move but discovering what it means to be a sovereign person. And I love that phrase. It's so rich. That's like a $30 phrase, a sovereign person. <laughs> it is a $30 phrase. Yes. To, and, you know, it is loaded, right? What yes. that means and what it doesn't mean. So not worrying about the right move, but discovering that what it means to be a sovereign person to exercise power over your options, decisions and desires without being ruled by any of them. To realize that you don't need to know exactly where you're headed to start walking, 
nor do you need permission to do it. I read that and I was like jumping up and down in my chair going, yes. <laughs> but you kind of already knew that, right? I mean, you know that you, you are a sovereign person. You're very aware of it. Do you think that that rings for you because it's affirming of what you believe already? I would hope so. And I also hope that people who have never even thought of the idea of being a sovereign person. To, they think to, they're owned by their obligations, by what they owe family job. I have to, I have to do this. I have, I have to, to do that. To. When every, every single thing is a choice. It's moment to moment. It's day to day. I can choose to not ever get out of bed. I can choose to. You could, you could not pay your taxes. Choice. Yeah. You could just not pay them. You, you, there's, there's a consequence, but yeah. you have a choice. Yeah. There's always a choice. And people, once you understand that you own that choice, every choice, every single choice you make, you get to decide um, it gives you so much more power and freedom and peace. Then, then why don't people do it though? Because if you own it, then you are responsible. I believe that the hesitation, not across the board, but in some cases has to be that if I own it, then I could get in trouble. I could get blamed. Someone might not like it. And that's correct. Someone might not like it, but if it's not my fault and I have to do things, I am blameless. Yeah. Or at least I think I am. We know those people are not blameless because they, they drive you crazy when you want to see them and they can't because they have to do a million other things. <clears throat> but isn't that, don't we think that's part of why a lot of people say they, and, and believe, really believe they have to do these things and there's no way around it. That way they are blameless. Whereas if I decide I'm going to do this, well, someone might not like that. The difference is I don't care. The difference is, I mean, I do care for someone I, I care about, but I don't, I decided a long time ago, I wasn't going to bow to that because I don't want my life to be just checkered with things I didn't want. Now realize, again, we can't talk about this without talking about the level of privilege. And I am a privileged woman. I grew up privileged. I am, I am a woman of color, but I, people think I'm all like a white woman. And, and so I have had an easier time. A lot of people don't get to just choose left, right, and center what they're going to do. I get that. I also chose not to marry or have children. So therefore, I do have more time and I can do more things than someone who has five children and two jobs. I get that. They can't be me and I don't want them to be me. They should, no one should, just me is being me. Mm -hmm. But still, I believe that I am not the only one who gets to be sovereign. I believe that a lot of that is a choice because it's fed to us, especially oh, women. Hit the nail on the so head. So young. It is fed to us and we have swallowed it and swallowed it for so long that we cannot distinguish it from our own cells. We believe we owe that we should be grateful, that we shouldn't wander far, and that we owe people explanations of where we are, what we're doing with whom at every point of the day. Yeah. And that we somehow should have excuses at the ready if something we do isn't exactly as someone else expected it. Yeah. And I, that's And so much it. of that, like what you said, so much of that is inherited. It's what you were taught as a kid. And oh, the, it was really ingrained in us. Oh, yeah. I'm just finishing right, reading uh, What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. And it's, it's trauma-based, but it's such an eye-opener for how just the framework of how we think and how much of it is inherited from what we were exposed to as children. We were, you know, at three months old, we are making millions and millions of neural cells in our head. And we don't have the parts of our 
brain developed yet to understand language or context or, you know, any of those things. It's pre-language memories, but they're mm-hmm. still there because the, the, it's all mapped out. Um, and, and case after case and story after story, it goes through and explains what, you know, intrinsic bias is and, and how, you know, we don't, we're not aware of our own privilege. We're not aware of the things that we grew up with that we assume everyone else has. Or the, th- oh or my the God, totally. viewpoints that everyone else has. We have no idea. We can't just go, today I'm sovereign. I'm free. I, I think I know. It's like, there'll be stuff we'll never dig up or really understand. But yeah. we have to at least know that it's there. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you're a critic. You're like, oh, it's just kind of avuncular, caring, overbearing figure. And like, I was raised thinking there was, you know, our father, his son, and the Holy Spirit and I pictured our father. I knew who Jesus was. I felt like he's kind of your advocate in house with the big guy. And the Holy Spirit is some kind of wisp or vapor floating around. And I felt I was being watched and judged. And my job was to at least be able to, you know, keep my nose clean, like make sure it was like, I'm doing everything above board. I'm making from the beginning. It wasn't even subtle. It was overtly like, yeah. I'm going to do well in this. I want to make sure no one's mad that I do everything right. That does serve to make for a very, you know, a good child. Okay, fine. I was a good kid. I didn't rebel against anything. But then later you realize there's some stuff to untangle. Isn't that kind of complex? Because it's not like one day you're like, oh, I sterilized myself of all those former influences. We can't. No, it's a lifelong journey. It's like if you have a, a, a cube that's one foot by one foot of all the tangled necklaces and you get one free, and you're like, oh, yes, I understand. Yes, you got one. This one's free. And you look back and it's like, well, there's there's more. There's always more. But our, our goal is to say, you know, not to give up and say, well, this is just how I am. Is that really who you want to be? Is right. that how you want to be? And, Rather than, well, that's me. Yeah. I'm, I'm dyed in the wool. Yeah. Or I'm broken. Not true. Yeah. I can't change it. I'm too old. None of these things are true. Not true. Not but true. also... The way that I deal with that is to say, oh, I feel this way. And I feel the conflict of that feeling or decision. And I go, what are the assumptions I'm making about this situation? What am I assuming? What What are the, like, peek behind the curtain to be like, yes. all right, let's just be honest. What am I really thinking? As I said earlier, what am I really afraid of? What do I really want? Yeah. At least if you keep yourself honest about it. So you're not like, well, I just can't because, you know what I mean? Like, you know, okay, so I'm. I'm in my, I'm teetering toward the end of my forties here. And so I'm squarely Gen X. And one of my friends is, has been a teacher for a long time and she wants to make a career change. And she was, we had breakfast and she was like, but don't you think like, this is where it goes down. She goes, but don't you think like people our age, like maybe we can't do that. And I was like, no, 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 no. I said, honey, you're not going to get me to buy into this idea. You just made up just now that people of our age in our forties can't decide to change careers or do something different. What are you saying? Do you want to do this forever? No. I said, well, then you're going to have to do something or are you going to just wait and then die? Do you want to just wait till you drop dead? Do nothing. This is life is long if you're lucky. So, you know, but I could hear it sneaking in already. Mm-hmm. Ask a 70 year old woman who's very busy with her life and her business. If she thinks 40s is too old to do anything, she'll laugh in your she'll face. Laugh in your face. <laughs> well, how dare we? When people go like, oh, my age, uh, the people I hang out with keep getting younger because I'm telling you, I don't have any stomach for that. <laughs> yeah. And it's good that you're you're telling them things like that. Like, no, no this no bullshit. This is no bullshit. Like, why would you say that? No. But when I say, why would you say that? They go, there's no reason. There's no, they're like, 
oh, well, because it's a fact. Women over 40 can't have any life anymore. I was like, where did you get this idea? You, if you ask the question, there's no answer. And therefore, just like you do with your critic, then it's not a real, it's not a real assumption. Next. Next. That's it. <laughs> next. Next career. Do your next thing. I love it. So I'm curious now what the, what the next book is that you didn't get to write this time. You know, I don't know. I like you, I kind of go on and move on to the next thing. So I have all the drafts from that. I mean, it was originally going to be a collection of essays and, you know, those are just harder to sell if you're not someone who's famous for writing essays. Uh, So I don't know if it needs to be that. I'm really sort of a, let's see what, what goes, does well and what people like. And if people really like this book and there's, I assume this is going to be a journey for me because I'm going to get to meet people and they're going to tell, give me an earful. Oh yeah. People are going to, people are going to, tell me what the next book is. Cause I'm going to hear, well, you didn't talk about this or not. And I'll be like, Oh, that's a good one. And then I'll just start the way I did this one. One tiny paragraph at a time, one tiny page at a time and figure it out. So I don't even have any designs on what exactly that will be. But if, if people like it, I will just keep doing it. Cause that's fun. Mm-hmm. If people were like, please write a sonnet, we'll pay you all this money. Great. So I guess I'd be writing sonnets. I'll kind of do <laughs> whatever I think people like, because I like writing. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. I love reading your writing because there is so much sense of voice. I did not hear my own voice in my head. as I was reading it. It was, it was all you. And you, Don't you think it's because we know each other, though? Well, I've heard enough of 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 your voice and and whatnot. I, but you know, I'm curious so, to people who I don't know. I, I wonder what they hear. Maybe their mother's voice. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear because you have a you have an interesting cadence. It's East Coast to me, but it's not an accent. And you talk fast, so I, and I read fast, so your voice can keep up with my reading. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed the 130 pages I've read so far, and I'm very much looking forward to reading the rest. Well, I appreciate that support. I really, really do. If you want to learn more about it and see what this is, what Kimmy and I are talking about, um, just go to unfollowyourpassion.com. I'm no dummy. My name is my name is complex for people who don't know how to spell it. And so I was like, let's just make it easy. So unfollowyourpassion.com will take you over to the website. We'll show you what the book's about. And if you pre-order the book before it comes out on December 21st, then you get and you put in your little, you know, receipt number, whatever, you get access to other stuff I created just for pre-party people. So that's a reason to do it. I created a mini course and I have like a companion guide and all this kind of fun stuff. And we're doing a live book club in January where we get together live every Tuesday evening in January. And we're going to work through some of those themes in the book, but that's just for people who buy it before it's out because I want to, I want to give something to those people who have been so supportive and you've been one of them. So thank you. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. And that is so generous of you. Thank you. For more good juju, visit cami.coach, C-A-M-I dot coach.